good evening, everyone. And can we turn to God in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. That you have spoken through it. And you continue to speak. So we ask that you, your words would be heard and yours alone. And that you would give us open, receptive hearts. Touch our hearts this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It must be one of the most difficult jobs around. No matter what they do, they seem to end up upsetting somebody. And every decision they make seems to have someone saying it was wrong. No, I'm not thinking about traffic wardens. And Gary, I'm not even thinking about ministers. (laughs) I'm thinking about football referees. And I've been there, sitting on the sofa, my bag or my bowl of crisps in front of me, (laughs) munching, yes, I know how to live it up, believe me, Uh, (laughs) munching away, watching the football, until invariably it happens. The referee either blows up or he doesn't blow up for a particular decision and the players immediately, they've been trying to stamp this out for years, but immediately they sort of swamp them. What, what are you doing? And you jump up with your bowl of crisps going everywhere <laughs> and you shout those wonderful words that people have been shouting through the centuries, it feels like, where's your glasses, ref? <laughs> Yes, you can understand why my daughter does not like to watch football with her dad. (laughs) Being a referee is a difficult job. They've actually, believe it or not, uh, had to call a strike in non-league football over in England because of the abuse that referees were getting. Referees have a hard life. Uh, What I hear from pundits and players and managers, though, is interesting. Because every time they come on the television to talk about a decision about a referee, the one thing they, they say that is so, so important is consistency. Consistency. What they want more than anything else is to know where they stand. They want... Decisions to be fair and consistent. If a referee blows the whistle about one thing, then he should blow for the same thing in a different game. And so often the managers say they don't. This week in our Holy Week services, we're traveling back into the Old Testament. And I begin by saying, if I'm honest, that I think we as Christians can find the Old Testament challenging. Can we even be a little bit scared of it? For aren't there many stories in the Old Testament that we find difficult to understand? 
Don't we look at some of the events that take place and we think, oh, I don't like that. Don't we even feel at times as if the God of the Old Testament is unapproachable, frightening even. So different perhaps from that picture of Jesus, gentle, meek and mild that we have uh, taught to us so often in Sunday school. So many Christians today, I feel, struggle with the Old Testament. And they think that there seems to be a vast gap between the God who speaks in the Old Testament scriptures and the God of Jesus Christ in the New. But this week, as we think of how scripture was foretold and then fulfilled, we hear something important. We hear that God can be trusted. We hear that he is consistent, that he is faithful. Last night, Gary led us in thinking away back at the beginning in Genesis, and we were reminded that God had from the beginning a plan. That he didn't make things up as he went along, but that he had long prepared and planned for the one way in which humanity could be made right with him. The one way in which humanity could be healed, rescued, set free. From the beginning, God was preparing a saviour. God was preparing a lamb. One of the most wonderful pleasures that I have as a minister is being asked by couples to officiate in their wedding. It is a privilege, really it is, to, to be there on the big day, on a very special, important day. And of course, because it's so special and so important, I like, I'm sure nearly every minister, we like to have a rehearsal. And so do the couples. It's important for us as well as the couples. I remember one of my first uh, rehearsals when I came and I was holding my book. Something like this, when the best man put the rings on it, they, they proceeded to, to gently roll down, round and, and, and along the church to everybody going, oh. Thankfully, it was only a rehearsal. And I've learnt, I've learnt, keep your book flat. But rehearsals are important. They're certainly very important for the special couple as well, for the bride and groom. There's always an amount of nerves. Of course there is. But more than that, having that rehearsal and going through that service helps everyone, bride, groom, parents, best man, everyone, to get a better idea of the service. I hope to better appreciate the big day, to better understand it. This evening we think about Passover, God's powerful nation-forming rehearsal for what he was planning to do many years later through his son. Now when I use the word rehearsal, don't get me wrong, because it's only part of the story. Rehearsal doesn't completely capture what God was doing in the book of Exodus. 
For the book of Exodus isn't just an unimportant dry run. This is God who is compassionate, who is merciful. God who sees the groans and pains of his people as they're in bondage in Egypt and does something about it. This isn't simply a rehearsal because the the bonds, the shackles that are on the people of Israel as they serve as slaves in Egypt are very real. There was a real deliverance. But while the people were to be delivered, and delivered in a particular way, so too the way they were delivered. And the whole story would point forward. It would help us understand today, appreciate better what God was going to do years from then through his son. Many of us will look back in fondness on the story of Joseph. We, we remember the story of Joseph. Perhaps we've even seen or heard the musical and Joseph and his, his multicolored coat. You'll remember how he was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers. You'll remember that how, although things seem to certainly go like a roller coaster up and down and up and down, that eventually Joseph was raised up to a high position in Egypt, something like the prime minister. And because of that, he was in a position to do something about a terrible famine that was coming. Joseph saved many lives. And in fact, he's probably saved the lives of his jealous brothers and their family as they eventually came down to Egypt looking for bread as well. God placed Joseph in an important place at an important time to rescue and save many people. But of course, as we read on, we discover that following uh, Joseph's death and some years after, a new pharaoh would of course come to the throne. And this pharaoh, seeing the Israelites grow in number and importance in his land, thought, oh no, they're not going to take over. And he turned them into slaves. There they suffered and they suffered and they suffered. But God saw their suffering and their pleas for help. And he raised up Moses. Moses who would come to Pharaoh on God's behalf and say, let my people go. You know, of course, as well as I do, Pharaoh's response, no way. And so plague after plague, as indications of God's power, as indications of what God could do, of who the true God was, came upon Egypt. And each plague was particular, and each plague was formed in a way that it would, uh, it would, in a sense, show Egypt's gods up for what they were, false and powerless in face of the one true God. This evening's passage tells us... Uh, From Exodus 12, a very solemn story. It's not one that we take delight in reading. 
But we hear that how Pharaoh, as he continually went back on his promise to let the people go, was confronted and given one last chance, a chance which he spurned again. And God brought judgment on the land of Egypt. Not simply a plague of flies or locusts or boils this time, but God's judgment. A terrible judgment. Every firstborn male, animal or human, would die. To us today, that must sound extreme, terrible. But then I remind myself that I live in a free country. I remind myself that we live in a place where we're generally safe. That those in charge of our land have never passed any laws commanding, for instance, that all baby boys would be dashed to death. Or that a certain race or group would be persecuted. But if we read the start of the book of Exodus, we find that that is exactly what was happening to the Israelites in Egypt. Moses himself, you will remember, only escaped by being put in a basket. One of our struggles with the Old Testament and the difficult stories it contains is that we live in a world very different from theirs. That we live in many ways, in a protected space. We are, even though perhaps we don't appreciate it enough, protected from many of the dark forces in this world. Not so many other people, many other Christians today, who, like the Israelites, face real death and persecution. If God's action seems extreme, then the situation was extreme. And God came and brought his judgment. I'm sure many of you have heard of the primary school teacher who was watching her classroom children as they drew pictures. Occasionally she'd walk around the room and she'd look over the shoulder of each child. uh, And she saw a little girl drawing something. And she asked, what are you drawing? The little girl looked up carefully from her desk and replied, I'm drawing God. And the teacher paused and said, but really no one knows what God looks like, do they? And the little girl, as quickly as anything, replied, oh, they will in a minute. (laughs) It can be very tempting to picture God how we want him to be. For some today, that means that God is made up to be a sort of jovial Santa Claus. Or maybe today, an Easter bunny, who goes around simply giving out gifts, but really is cuddly and unthreatening. And we don't really have to worry about him at any other time of the year. But God is consistently God. He is consistently patient and kind. Merciful even. Yet he is also consistently righteous and just and holy. 
Here in the book of Exodus, we see that God does judge wickedness. That he can't just overlook sin and pretend it's not there. We see, indeed, that God is holy and just. And that his very nature demands that he brings a judgment against evil and sin. Friends, none of us like thinking about the terrible darkness that we call sin. But if we don't mention it in this week of all weeks, then we simply aren't doing justice to the wonder of the gospel. We aren't seeing properly the miracle of the cross. If we see the evil in this world as something that could be fixed, if only we had better education. If only there were some better laws. Then we're not appreciating the deep darkness that can exist in each human life. In each human heart. We're not truly appreciating why Jesus had to die. The Bible tells us simply that the wages of sin is death. And we heard last night how... God, in in a sense, pronounced that judgment upon the first human beings. Here in Exodus 12, we get a terrible picture of what death really looks like. We see judgment upon a nation. The wages of sin is death. But that's not the end of the verse. Romans 6 tells us, but the gift of God is eternal life In Christ Jesus our Lord. We hear of God's fearful judgment. At Passover. But we also see how God provides a way of escape. And God tells Moses. To tell the people. Very clearly and precisely. What they needed to do. For they won't be spurred automatically. Just because they are slaves. And they are not Egyptians. That's not the way it was going to work. We can't be born into a salvation. In a sense just because our family is. Or our church is. Or we're born in a Christian land. No they had to follow God's commands. Each family must select a lamb or calf. Without blemish. Without defect. They were to kill it. Roast it. Eat it. Along with flat unleavened bread that's bread without yeast. And some bitter herbs. These elements of the Passover meal were given to remind the people to flee in haste from Egypt. No time for yeast. No time for the bread to rise. You have to go. And of course the bitter herbs spoke of their bitter experience in Egypt. But at the center of the meal was the lamb. A perfect lamb without defect. A lamb that had to die. A lamb whose blood had to be taken and sprinkled on the top and sides of their door frames. For God had told Moses that he would go through the land bringing judgment. And where he saw the blood on the door. He would pass over that house. Those inside would be spared. 
Here was God's way of protecting, of saving, of rescuing. A perfect lamb without defect was slain in a particular way. In a way that meant that none of the lamb's bones should, could be broken. Verse 46. The lamb would die, its blood would be shed, but those who dwelt under the protection of the blood would be safe. The Passover was about protection and liberation. And what God had told those people long ago to do, he told them to pass on, to share with their sons and daughters, and for them to pass on to their sons and daughters, and their sons and daughters, and to continually share it. And each year they were told to gather and celebrate their deliverance from Egypt with a special Passover celebration, a sacred family meal. A meal where they would eat once more, eat the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. A meal where they would share the lamb. A meal where the family would all recite at particular specific time, places in the meal, specific verses. Reminding them of what God had done. As each family met, they could look back. They could remember what God had done for them. But perhaps what they didn't realize. All those years between the first Passover and the coming of the Christ. Was that they were also looking forward to a new Passover. For many years later a prophet would become sent from God. Called John. John the Baptist. And he would stand at the river Jordan. As he was baptizing those who were coming. With with, uh, repenting of their sins. Telling them to begin a life anew. And John would look up. And he would see a man coming towards him. And he would testify. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. As John the Baptist looked at Jesus that declared, and declared him to be the Lamb of God, John wasn't picturing a lovely, cute, fermana lamb sort of galloping around the fields at this time of year. No, John, like every good Jew, knew what had to happen to a lamb. It had to be slain. Jesus himself knew this. Even while he was still popular, even before the chief priests and religious leaders had come to draw plans against him, Jesus would tell his disciples, his own friends, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. Jesus not only knew what awaited him. But he knew it was all part of God's plan. He knew that he as the lamb of God had to die. 
And so when we get to the last week of his life, the week we now call Holy Week, the week we are journeying through now, Jesus knew where he must be. Jerusalem. At Passover. A time when the Jews would again come together to celebrate and remember God's deliverance. At a time that we will remember in a, in a couple of nights. When Jesus would gather his disciples together for a special meal. A meal where he would give them these words which we continue to remember today. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood. Which is poured out for you. Jesus knew. Accepted that he was God's lamb. And God steered events to the point that even when the soldiers came to break Jesus' leg on the cross, on the cross in the day of his crucifixion, a practice that was common to hasten their death on the cross, to prevent it going on too long, it was actually a, something of a mercy. They found they didn't need to do it in Jesus' case, for he was already dead. And so like the Passover lamb had to be, his bones remained unbroken. The New Testament scriptures speak time and time again of Jesus as our lamb, yours and mine. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 tells us, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus died for you and for me. God is consistent. God had a plan. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb for you and for me. A tourist once visited a church in Germany, I'm told, and was surprised to see a carved figure of a lamb near the top of the church's tower. He asked why it was there. And he was told this story. The story was told that when the church was being built, a workman fell from that high tower, from a scaffold. And his co-workers rushed to him on the ground, expecting, believing him to be dead. But to their surprise and delight, they found that he was alive. How did he survive? Well, a flock of sheep happened to be passing at that time. And as the man fell, he fell on top of a lamb. The lamb was crushed to death. But the man survived. To commemorate that miraculous escape. They put a carving of a lamb on the tower. At the exact height from where the workman fell. The Lamb of God slain for you 
slain for me. That we might be set free. Let us pray. Lord God, we confess that we at times can can struggle and be confused with your word. We hear things and we read things and we're not sure what they mean or how they relate to us. Lord, we pray that you, through your spirit, would continue to help us with courage to delve deep into your scriptures and listen for your voice. For you have promised that through the Holy Spirit you will lead us into all truth. And we ask indeed that as Jesus shared and the hearts of those two on the Emmaus road burned, we pray that as we open your word each day, our hearts would burn as you speak directly to us, leading us, guiding us, revealing your ways and yourself to us. This evening we particularly thank you for Jesus, our Saviour, the Passover lamb, slain for us, a lamb without blemish, Jesus perfect in every way, died in our stead. We pray that each of us personally would have that assurance that we, that our sin is covered by his blood. We ask indeed that you would have written on our hearts that truth that Jesus is our saviour, our lamb, Amen.